This is a podcast from RNIB's Insight Radio. Hello, my name is Giles Abbott, and I am a visually impaired storyteller and voice teacher. To start off with, could you tell me about what it means to be a storyteller and how you got involved? Traditional storytelling means the preservation by telling of very, very old stories, sometimes very old, not always. But essentially, storytelling means you present a story using your words, using gestures, using voice and movement, and you use that to take an audience on an imaginative journey, which takes them into some pretty wild places. But stories always work kind of in a, in a world which is real and not real. And it means you can take them into a really deep metaphorical journey and hopefully back to themselves with a different understanding of either themselves or their world. Or it can just be bloody good fun and downright silly. Storytelling has been passed on for thousands of years without being written down. And so, although mostly stories are written down nowadays, most of the stories I tell, I've never seen them written down. That's why I got into it, because I couldn't see letters after the age of 25. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So what were you doing before the age of 25 and you started getting more involved in storytelling? Before the age of 25, I was having ridiculous notions about what I was going to do for a living if I grew up and trying my best to avoid that. And then I got, well, my, my right eye went first with optic neuritis, and my right eye, it took five days to lose all of the central vision in that eye. And then five months after that, my left eye joined its brother, and that took four hours. So that's how long it took me to lose the ability to read books forever, which was a bit of a blow. But, you know, after a while you realize, okay, well, I'm going to have most of my life to live without eyes that work perfectly, so let's get on with it. And I tried lots and lots of different things that I could do, and tried singing in a choral society, that didn't quite work. I was singing too low. I tried, I did some counseling courses, which were fascinating, but not quite my direction. And then I came across storytelling in a pub in West Yorkshire. I lived in Todmorden and Hebden Bridge just down the valley. Uh, somebody told us, come down to this pub, they've got a storyteller on. And I was thinking, you yeah, what? They still do that? And went down there fully expecting a bunch of beardy weirdies in comfortable knitwear. By the way, listeners, I, I, I don't look anything like that. <laughs> um, he said, scratching his beard and stretching in his comfortable knitwear. Uh, but I fell in love. There were four local people, I can still remember their names, Alan, Christine, Paul and Rachel. And they told... Stories which were set in the valley, although I think, to be honest, what they've done is get any old good story, you know, because you can do that with a story. And I just thought, this is amazing, I can do this. And then it came to the end and the host said, it's time for the open spot, which he'd been to. And I'd been thinking, I could have a go at that one day. If I can get Suze, who's my girlfriend then, my wife now, to read me a book about this, then maybe I can do this. Well, the open spot came around and the host said, put your hands together and welcome a newcomer to the club who's never told a story in public before put your hands together for Sue's. And I had a Scooby-Doo moment. It's got a boom. And my girlfriend, whom I had identified as being profoundly dyslexic when she had to start reading my correspondence to me, got up and told a story brilliantly about her father's childhood in Jamaica. And by the time she sat down, I knew how I could tell a story because the reason she could tell that that night was because the day before I'd told it to her because the day before that... Her mother had told it to me. So the following month I did. And within a year I was getting bookings at festivals. So, 
What was it about that first night that really captured your imagination? One thing which was really important is I thought this is something I could do. It doesn't rely on text. The other thing was, I guess in a way I've been doing it all my life. When I was little, my mother and father used to pick my brother up from school and then she would read to us from an old translation of the Iliad and then the Odyssey. I just loved that world of you know, all these different amazing characters and gods messing around and poking their noses in. And so when I could read myself, I read Viking myths, I read Celtic myths, I read more Greek myths. And of course, you know, I was quite, a, quite an early reader and this, at school this gets channeled into the study of literature. But in the back of the mind, the thing that I always loved was the traditional mythology. So it was kind of always there. And now it's taken you on to numerous festivals and you've recently just got back from India. Um, tell me about that experience and what that festival was all about. That was absolutely wonderful. I was contacted by the Kataka International Storytelling Festival and they said that they'd gone into partnership with British Council. So what they were offering was, as well as the festival, uh, an 11-day tour, teaching workshops to teachers and running story sessions for children and adults. And of course I wanted to say yes. And my wife said... I don't want to go to India. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to say yes to this. Well, in that case, I'm coming. I'm not letting you bimble around India on your own. We went, and we, because, I mean, a lot of my perceptions of India were based on what people told me 20-odd years ago when they went and did their gap year. So, of course, being young people, they go, oh, God, you know, squalor's amazing. You know, really sort of emphasizing the, the shock, the horror, whatever. We got there and thought, this is the most amazing place. It's a wonderful country. Yeah, so then what followed is we, we started in Kolkata, which is a, such an exceptionally teeming city. You, every street corner, there's something going on. I mean, there's lots of things which even now I think I saw. Some of them I did see. A lot of them were described to me. But the weird thing is, after a little while in memory, to me, there's no difference. But yeah, you'll see somebody like carving, I don't know if it was plaster he was carving or, or white stone, but carving temple decorations on the corner of the street. And next to him, underneath a gap in a building, the road is dropping away, so the building is propped up on a post to keep it level. But underneath the space, there's a man mending shirts or making shoes, and every single square foot of it was used. And the colours, I did, I do see colours, and uh, I kind of live in coloured shadows. And you see these great tides of colour moving down the road. And I got back to central London after a couple of weeks of this, and I'm thinking, where is everybody? It's quite wonderful. When you talk about the workshops that you do with adults and children, what kind of things do you try and teach people on those workshops? For a number of years, I've been running workshops where, as well as going to schools to tell children stories, I go to schools and run hour and a half long workshops in which the children in groups create stories which have never been told before. And they're all using the same structure, then guide them through the creation of a new story and then help them develop the story and then they, they perform it. And lots of schools I've visited have said, oh, that's, this is how we're going to teach writing now, which is great. A few years ago, I went into partnership with another storyteller and voice teacher. He's also a rhetorician and a linguist and a mathematician and a philosopher. And uh, He's called Leon Conrad. He's a great friend of mine. And we founded a partnership called the Academy of Oratory, and we teach professionals to speak professionally. But we also do work with education, a lot of it. And we've been analyzing the structures that lie underneath the world's most persistent stories. You might have heard the thing that there's only seven types of story. We've got 13, and we've broken them down into numbered, teachable steps. And you can then apply these structures 
So what I was doing with the teachers in India is I was teaching them essentially the same workshop that I do with children, but teaching them in such a way that they could then go and deliver it for children in their schools. Really, really thrilling, actually, because they got stuck in and they came up with some great stories. And nicely, some of them went for inventing a story off the top of their head, and others realized, oh, hang on a minute, this structure, this is the Ramayana. And so they started doing sections of Hindu epic. I think, yeah, it is the Ramayana, it's also Star Wars. Another thing that you've done recently is um, workshops involving children with visual impairments and their siblings. Can you tell me a little bit about what that involved and how it's different working with visually impaired children and sighted children, and if it is different at all? I don't know that it is, actually. This was a group of children who didn't know each other. They were there with their siblings and with their parents. And I basically used the same structure which I've used many times before. Because it's content-free, and I'm not demanding that they describe this or that, it doesn't require them to have a particular way of representing the world. So if they want to talk about what they heard when such and such came into the room, or what they saw if they've got some sight, they can do what they like. So there's a lot of... Within the big sort of architectural restrictions, there's absolute freedom. And I'm not, no, I'm not sure that I did notice a difference. But one thing I did notice is that uh, there was one parent in particular was saying that his daughter, who's very bright, is in mainstream school, and he felt that that was good and not so good at the same time. As I'm sure people who are in uh, blind-only schools feel that's good and not so good at the same time. But he was saying, you know, is there anywhere in London where I could, because I'd love to get, she's inventive, she's creative. And it actually made me think I would love to start a storytelling group for blind children because this is something we can do. We can learn stories without reading the text and we can tell stories. I've known this for a long time and I've always thought that's a fantastic opportunity to actually give blind children something they can do, which they can do just as well and in which they can explore their creativity and gain in confidence. So if anybody hears this and wants to get in touch because they've got some ideas of how I can make that possible, I would love to start running a weekly group for children uh, creating telling stories. What kind of a difference do you notice that it makes to children from the start of sessions to the end of sessions when you start doing storytelling workshops or, or telling them stories? At the start of the session, children are a little bit uncertain, a little bit sceptical. Um, it's the same as they are if I start telling them stories. The first thing you encounter is resistance, as in, I'll oh, come off it. There was a what? And at a certain point, they drop into it. And with the young kids at the uh, Royal Festival Hall for the Discover Festival, there was a certain uncertainty because they don't know each other. And so there's a close, you know, they'll stick close to siblings and parents and things. But when the work started, they started throwing ideas in. And when they realized that I'm taking their ideas and spinning, turning it into a story, and that's a story has just been told, which has never been told before, and they helped create it, then you have absolute engagement. And we also distributed bits of percussion so they can make sound effects. And and the feeling you have at the end is that they leave exhilarated and energized. And so did I. What else have you got coming up in the future? Where can people find you? I have a monthly residency at the Victor Wind Museum of Curiosities in Hackney which is a very strange and wonderful place. It's a cocktail bar upstairs, and there are stuffed animal heads jutting out of all the walls. There is a stuffed lioness in a neat little trilby hat sat at one table with a glass in her paw, and then when you go downstairs, it's one of the most strangest and smallest museums. It's a kind of a, a museum of the macabre, 
and the gothic and the strange. But I tell stories there once a month. I won't actually be there this month. Um, but on the second Sunday of every month, apart from this month, I'm there telling stories. I am beginning work now on a new Arts Council commission on behalf of Pope's Grotto Preservation Trust. The 18th century poet Alexander Pope built himself a beautiful house and estate and a grotto, which was a tunnel which linked two parts of his property. And the grotto became like a jewellery box almost. Well, his home was destroyed because there were so many literary pilgrims that visited the site after his death that the people who bought it after him got sick of it and, and just tore the whole house down. The grotto survives. It's now on the grounds of a school. But to be honest, at the moment, it looks like a coal cellar with a few oddities in. But the Pope's Grotto Preservation Trust are working to raise the finance to restore it to its glittering glory. And so I've been commissioned to create a story about Alexander Pope and his grotto. There are a, a number of performances scheduled for summer. If people want to follow my work, they can either like my Facebook page, Giles Abbott Storytelling and Downloads, or can go to my website, which is www.gilesabbott.com. And there are stories on YouTube and things like that, so people can find out if they like what it is I do. Or they, nah, he just, he just goes on, doesn't he? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and speaking to Insight Radio. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from RNIB's Insight Radio. For more podcasts, check out insightradio.co.uk.